Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 26, and we're specifically in verses uh, 57 through 75. Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75. The topic there, in order to convict Jesus, the Jewish authorities produce a number of false witnesses. The title of our message, The Witness Pathetic Program. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. We want to settle in uh, to hear the word of God, to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, our church and each of us individually as your temple filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there's a few here today, Lord, that don't know you. They've never bowed their knee in a sense to you. They've never asked to be born again. They've never confessed their sins and they don't know, Lord, what would happen if the rapture took place today or they know that they'd be left behind and the prospect of that is terrifying. I pray that you administer to those as well, Lord. You're here in this place. You promised you would be. It doesn't matter our condition. Lord, we could never be holy enough or righteous enough or right enough for you to, to be here. But despite who we are and what we've done, you're here, Lord, in power to minister heart to heart. To you, we can confess our sin and be cleansed. To you, we can ask for help and be helped. If we feel unloved, Lord, we can know that you loved us at the cross and you love us with an everlasting love that can never be broken. If we've fallen away from our first love, we can return to it. If we're sinning, we can repent. So much spiritual business can take place here this morning, Lord. I pray that it would under the ministry of your spirit through this word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Chuck Norris has made something of a comeback on social media as a hero. Here are a few of the most recent online Norrisisms. When Chuck Norris was born, the only one who cried was the doctor. Never slap Chuck Norris. <laughs> Death once had a near Chuck Norris experience. And then there's this one. Chuck Norris and Superman once fought each other on a bet. The loser agreed to start wearing his underwear on the outside of his clothes. <laughs> we like our heroes that way, tough, in control, undefeated. Jesus seemed anything but heroic to the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They arrested him, they accused him of blasphemy, they sentenced him to death, they spit in his face and beat him with their hands while mocking him cruelly. What kind of hero lets, him be treat, lets himself be treated that way? If Jesus is the hero of the gospel, then in his absence, the heroes and heroines are those whom he chooses to follow him and to proclaim his gospel. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, seemed anything but heroic as he followed Jesus from a distance, then denied him three times. Let's face it, both Jesus and Peter seemed to fail, but we know the sequel Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He conquered sin and death and now offers all mankind the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. Having been lifted up on the cross, his grace is at work on men's hearts to draw them to himself, freeing their wills to choose or to reject the gospel. Peter would give the first testimony of the church age. Once afraid of a servant girl, he would be fearless before a mocking crowd talking about Jesus, 3,000 men and women were saved. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about power and failure with an emphasis upon our failures being overcome as we seek the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you see Jesus' power 
despite his apparent failure? And number two, do you seek Jesus' empowering despite your actual failures? Let's take a look first of all in verses 57 through 68 at Jesus' power. Now, we do see the Lord's power as he has answered the Sanhedrin, but it's because we know the whole story. Try to put yourself in this scene for a moment without reference to what we know happened afterwards. Let's pretend you don't know anything past this trial. The only power being wielded seemed to be by the Jewish ruling authority. And that's a good exercise because so, so often as Christians, uh, we understand God's power and God's ability and, and all of these things, but it doesn't seem like it's being wielded in our situation, does it? It seems like we are being treated despitefully. It seems like we are the weak ones. It seems like everyone else is in control but us. And again, it's because in our lives as well, we don't know the end of the story. We don't know what God is accomplishing. We don't know what is going on. We do know that God is powerful. We do know that God loves us. And those things, God says, they ought to be enough to help us to endure what it is we have to endure. And so in verse 57, we find Jesus in front of this Jewish council. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Those who assembled were the Jewish Sanhedrin, or at least a majority of it, probably not all of them because there would have been some dissenters uh, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. This was a secret, quick, illegal meeting to kind of get the ball rolling. They would meet again in the morning uh, and, and ratify what they did here. But th this was nevertheless the Sanhedrin. Let me quote from a Jewish source that describes the Sanhedrin. It says, the ancient Jewish court system was called the Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin was the supreme religious body in Israel during the time of the temple. There were also smaller religious Sanhedrins in every town in the land of Israel. Sources describe the great Sanhedrin as an assembly of 71 sages who met in the chamber of hewn stone in the temple in Jerusalem. The great Sanhedrin met daily during the daytime. They did not meet on the Sabbath, on festivals, or festival eves. It was the final authority on Jewish law, and any scholar who went against its decisions was put to death. And I, I, I would take it that they were guilty and worthy of death, but the Jews were not able to put people to death while they were under Roman authority. It goes on to say the Sanhedrin judged accused lawbreakers. They could not initiate arrests. It required a minimum of two witnesses to convict a suspect. There were no attorneys. I'm all for that. Instead, the accusing witness stated the offense in the presence of the accused, and the accused could call witnesses on his own behalf. The court questioned the accused, the accusers, and the defense witnesses. Now, thinking about all of that, you realize this assembly was very wrong. It was illegal. This meeting was pre-dawn. It wasn't in the daytime. It was at Caiaphas's house, not in the temple. It was during a festival, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they had ordered the arrest of Jesus with a view to condemning him to death. Verse 58, Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. It took some courage to follow Jesus into that hostile courtyard. Not only was Peter a close associate of Jesus, Peter had assaulted the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Peter saw what happened next. Verse 59, now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus uh, to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses did come forward. 
If a person gave false witness to the Sanhedrin, the prescribed penalty for perjury, again, was death. But not on this night, because everybody coming forward was a false witness. There was nothing really to accuse Jesus of. You would think these guys would have been better prepared. Their whole mock trial was about to fail until finally two false witnesses came forward who said the same thing. Verse 61, they said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. This is like accusing Jesus of terrorism. They charged him with threatening to destroy the temple. Did he? Well, of course not. Here's what Jesus actually said about destroying the temple. In John 2.19, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. First of all, he wasn't speaking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking metaphorically about the temple of his body. It was a reference to his crucifixion and his resurrection three days later. Second, he wasn't the one who was going to do the destroying. He said, if you destroy the temple of my body, it was the Jews that were going to do the destroying. And third, his promise was to raise it up again, not to destroy it. Even a first-year law student could get this charge dropped. It was so ridiculous. But in verse 62, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? In other words, is it true? The accused was supposed to defend himself. That's the way the Sanhedrin system worked. No defendant remained silent until Jesus. A little insight as to his remaining silent after his arrest, because of where they were and where they were going, Jesus would have been escorted through what was called the Sheep Gate. It was an entrance into Jerusalem, and in particular, it was the entrance through which the sacrificial lambs would be brought to the temple. Thus did Isaiah prophesy in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Furthermore, in a few short hours, Jesus would be crucified just at the very time when the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. And so Jesus was keeping the type. He was this lamb that had been promised and prophesied so many years ago. Verse 63, he kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one or chosen one. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. In the Old Testament, the person anointed would be anointed with oil as a visible representation that they were regarded as having been singled out by God to have special position or power or functions. As time passed among the Jews, the term gradually came to refer to a deliverer a descendant of David who would restore Israel to the golden age she enjoyed under the rule of David. And so the anointed one, uh, the Messiah, not just an anointed person, but the uh, Messiah. Son of God did not mean to the first century Jews what it means to us. Here's a quote from the Jewish encyclopedia. Son of God is a term applied to an angel one of the mythological beings whose exploits are described in Genesis 6 and whose ill conduct was among the causes of the flood. In many passages, gods and judges seem equal, and it is applied to the real or ideal king over Israel. 
Sons of God and children of God are applied also to Israel as a people. They ultimately conclude by saying, the term son of God by no means carries the idea of physical descent from and unity with God the Father. The Hebrew idiom conveys nothing more than a simple expression of God-likeness. Jesus was the son of God, like other Israelites, in that he was a descendant of Abraham, and in that he was the real and ideal descendant of David, but the term meant more when applied to him. It expressed a nearness to God other Jews did not possess. So while the first century Jew did not equate the term son of God with deity, the way Jesus used it certainly spoke that or it went in that direction. For example, he said at one time, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And another time he said, I and the Father are one. He called God the Father, Abba, a term of endearment, the equivalent of us saying daddy, no Jew would ever use that term. And so, so there was this tension between Jesus and the Jews about his use of the word son of God, the phrase son of God. Was Caiaphas asking Jesus if he was God or was he asking him if he was the anointed one, the deliverer, the Messiah? Well, we don't know, but either way, Jesus went beyond what Caiaphas asked and he made a definite claim of deity. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. In other words, yeah, that's right. I'm the son of God, the Christ. And I say to you, hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes, he was Christ, the son of God, as Jews understood it. And he was the unique son of God as he had presented himself in his life and ministry as one with his father but he was also the son of man. Now to us as Gentiles, son of God seems to carry a lot more weight than son of man. We think of son of God as a title of deity. We think of son of man as a description of humanity. Now we've already seen the Jews didn't think son of God had anything really to do with deity. What about son of man? This is used in scripture in contexts of deity. For example, the Bible says in Isaiah, only God can forgive sins, and the Jews certainly believe that. And then it says in Mark chapter 2, Jesus said, so that you'll know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, referring to himself, he healed a man. And so Jesus took upon himself this title, the Son of Man, as a title of deity. And well, he should because we see it in Daniel. Daniel speaks of this individual called the son of man who he equates with the ancient of days. And this is what Jesus is quoting here when he says the son of man will come in clouds of glory to reign on the earth. He's equating himself with the son of man who is the ancient of days, who is God. When Jesus was asked by the high priest whether he was the son of God, he said, yes, and I'm the son of man, I am God coming in power and great glory. And if you don't believe all that, the high priest clearly understood Jesus' claim to be God because in verse 65, he tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What did the Jews consider blasphemous? Well, in John chapter 10, verse 33, in a previous encounter with Jesus, when they were getting ready to stone Jesus, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, 
Because you being a man make yourself God. And so it's unmistakable on any level, son of God, son of man, but when you get to Caiaphas saying this man has spoken blasphemy, it's crystal clear he understood Jesus to be equating himself with God, to being equal with God, to being God. And for this claim of deity, he said he should be killed. Verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Apparently, this was a uh, kind of game that they played with prisoners, a cruel game where they would blindfold and say, who hit you now? And they added here this idea of him claiming to be a prophet. Now, we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The shame of it speaks for itself. G. Campbell Morgan commented, as one reads this story, one wonders more and more at the greatest miracle of all, the patient suffering of the spotless uh, Lamb of God. Ironically, just at the moment they were mocking his ability to prophesy, his prophecy to Peter about the rooster crowing was being fulfilled. Jesus seemed powerless, not powerful. He seemed defeated, not victorious. To all observers, his mission seemed a failure despite all he had accomplished up to that point. The question for us is, do you see his power? And of course we do. Power under control for the good of humanity, including those who were abusing him. He would rise from the dead. He would ascend into heaven. He would sit at the right hand of the power, which is a Jewish way of referring to God without speaking his holy name. He would come back on the clouds of heaven, which is a reference to his return, his second coming, to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. We mentioned that Jesus came through the sheep gate, that he kept silent like a lamb led to the sacrifice to be crucified just as the Passover lambs were being slain. You might recall that John the Baptist identified him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's not done being the lamb because in the book of the Revelation, when he steps forward to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father that begins the great tribulation, he is identified as a lamb as though it had been slain. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And so this is a powerful metaphor, powerful symbol, typology, this picture of Jesus Christ as the lamb of God accomplishing the work of our salvation. Now, something more is indicated by Jesus' choice of words here, too. When he said in verse 64, hereafter you will see, the words can be translated from now on, this is what you're going to see. He wasn't merely saying that in some distant future he would return. That's true, of course, but that's not the whole story. He said, from now on, from this point going forward, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, to put ourselves into this, you know, it'd be one thing for Peter to say, as a testimony, to say, hey, one of these days, Jesus is going to come back and everything's going to be right. In the meantime, I don't know what's going on. Who knows what's happening? But Jesus says, no, from now on, right now, as I'm suffering, as you're beating me, as, as you're going to crucify, from this point forward, you're going to see the power of God. And it's going to march through the centuries until I come back. 
Now we, again, we always want to see the power of God in what we consider a powerful Chuck Norris kind of way. We get the diagnosis, whatever it is, of our illness. Uh, we're mistreated at work, where some trial gets, you know, lands in our lap, and it's like, okay, God, omnipotence, do it. Cure me, heal me, help me, do these things. And you know what the Lord says? He goes, well, from this moment on, everything that happens is a revelation of my power. But it may be my power in your weakness. It may be my power that you will endure this because the bottom line is we have to give a testimony of an absent Lord who is coming back. He was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God coming back to destroy the world, as it were, and get it ready for his rule. In the meantime, we're to proclaim this gospel. People see him as he is revealed to the world in his absence by us as we proclaim the gospel. His power and rule are evident in and through us. And history bears witness that this prediction is true. The original disciples turned the world upside down with the gospel. And it's been changing lives ever since in every generation, in every culture where it's been introduced. Right from the beginning, they were arresting these guys, beating them, saying, hey, you got to shut up. We can't have you talking about Jesus. We killed him. We thought it was over. Now it's worse than it was before. And Peter and John would say, hey, well, uh, we can't help you there. We have to talk about Jesus. If you want to beat us, that's fine. We have to obey God rather than men. Then they'd beat them up, put them in prison. They'd either break out of jail or get released, and they would go on praising God. For the most part, the gospel has been spread while Jesus and his followers seemed weak and powerless failures. Governments try in vain to silence believers to no avail. You would think that the Chinese government, closed off from the rest of the world for decades, kick, kicks out all American missionaries, all Western missionaries. No one is allowed into China. For decades, what's going to happen to the church? No one knows what's going on with the church. Communism is screwing down on the church, killing believers. Nixon goes to China, opens up China. We start having a relationship with China again, and one of the first things you find out is that there is a thriving underground church movement, millions upon millions of Christians who have come to Christ in the most severe regime you could imagine. I know when we visited China in the 80s, smuggled Bibles in, it is the most oppressive place. It's, it, you, maybe it was just me, but you almost can't breathe in Beijing. It's so oppressive. Not because of the air quality. There's a demonic presence there. You can just feel it. And yet the church underground thriving. This is what Jesus, he says, from now on, you guys, you're going to see some crazy, incredible things when it comes to power and weakness. It can't be stopped. But we certainly wouldn't have thought the gospel would get out of the first century based on the example of Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. So let's turn our attention to that and see his failure. Normally, we discuss for our own exhortation the reasons for Peter's abysmal failure, such as he followed from a distance and his prayerlessness in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's a great two-point devotion. Now, I'm all about encouraging myself and you to prayer and to closing any distance between us and Jesus, but to me, that's obvious. What is it that really caused Peter to fail? Couldn't we argue that he failed to give a testimony about Jesus because he had yet to receive the Holy Spirit? 
After he rose from the dead, Jesus instructed his small band of followers to wait for the promise of the Father, which he called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. These were saved men and women, but Jesus says you can't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes again in a fresh outpouring upon your life. On the day of Pentecost, the promised baptism came from heaven. Then this same Peter addressed a mocking crowd of thousands and gave an incredible apologetic for Jesus being the God-man who alone can forgive us our sins and save us for eternity. 3,000 people got saved. Was that the same guy who cowered in front of a servant girl? Well, yes and no. It was the same guy, but now baptized with the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. What I see in Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas is that failure is inevitable without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a saying, I forget where it comes from, but failure is not an option. You've heard that, right? Failure is the only option if you're doing things on your own in the flesh without the power of God. Sadly, I fail just as miserably with the Holy Spirit available to me. And I would say so do some of you as well. We need to be encouraged to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and to pursue serving the Lord as we are led by the Spirit. We need the encouragement to repent sometimes when it's necessary and let the Lord fill us with His Spirit again and use us. You know, a lot of times I think in our repentance we tell God, well, we'll try harder the next time. And I think a truer repentance is, God, I have to quit trying altogether and let you fill me and use me and just be available to you. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, verse 69, and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, and he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're saying. Peter was not questioned before a hostile court or even an angry mob. His fear made a servant girl a fierce foe, and he cowered before her. When he had gone out to the gateway, Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I don't know the man. You have to remember Peter. Peter's like the biggest of, of these guys. He's a big fisherman, we find out in one of the Gospels. There's, a, there's an episode in the Gospels where they can't get the nets in, and so they call for Peter because he's like the incredible Hulk. And he just, you know, oh, yeah, I get Peter. Peter's a big, bruising kind of guy. He's the guy you hung around with in high school. Uh, you know, if there was ever going to be a fight, you wanted Peter on your side. He couldn't be hurt, big, strong guy. You know, he'd lift people up with one hand, that kind of thing. These servant girls are saying, you are with Jesus. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm afraid of you. Get away from me, little girl. Get away. It's, it's really a crazy scene. Too bad it's so sad. It'd be funny. Verse 73, and a little later, those who stood by came up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man. William Barclay notes, so ugly was their accent that no Galilean was allowed to pronounce the benediction at a synagogue service. Man, don't you want to hear Galilean now? I want to hear that accent. You know, I love it when I'm watching, especially reality television, and people are speaking English, but they have to have subtitles. All of those Cajun shows. Now that gator come out there, That was a big gator, you know. <laughs> I don't mind watching BBC. 
They have a lot of great dramas on BBC. Some of them are just too British. They're just, you can't understand a word they're saying. I think we fought the Revolutionary War so that we could have real English in our country. <laughs> so that we, you know, I mean, you ever, yeah, there's the elevator. Uh, you know, that kind of, I, I don't understand what they're saying. It's, it's English, but it's not. And they usually don't have subtitles because they think they're speaking English. It's really rough. You have to watch that stuff two and three times to find out what's going on. But Peter, his accent gave him away. There was, apparently he didn't do impressions and he wasn't able to hide his accent and, and it was very, very pronounced. He took an oath and he started to swear. A little later, those who stood came by him and said, it's you, you're a Galilean, and then he began to swear. I guess swearing kind of solves things, you know? Why is that? That it, you, you, you know, you're, you're caught in something, you just start cussing, and it's like, oh, okay, well, that solves everything. <laughs> Sitting in the courtyard, surrounded by danger and non-believers, Peter represents all of us as we daily venture out into a hostile world. You see a few of the ways Peter represents us in the comments made about him. First comment was that Peter was with Jesus. If you're a Christian, it doesn't take long for people to see that you have been with Jesus. When you get saved, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. He begins to radically affect your motives and behavior, and you change. And people see that there is someone with you. They might say, hey, there's something different about you, but the truth is there's someone with you. God, the Holy Spirit. The next comment directed towards Peter was that he was one of them. He had hung out with the other followers of Jesus. When you get saved, you kind of want to be around other believers. You start attending a fellowship, you get involved serving, people begin to see that you are among them, especially today in the age of social media. Everybody's checking in, checking in at Calvary Hanford. People say, you checked in at a church? What's that all about? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And so, in some ways, it's easier to give a testimony about the Lord today than it's ever been, because you can do it almost anonymously online. And yet, I, I'm going to get really uh, razzed for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We spend uh, too much time not talking about Jesus and talking about other things that are absolutely inconsequential. Now, I post pictures of pies. I do. My famous pumpkin pie was there, and I, I have all kinds of crazy stuff that I, but I think people would understand that I'm also a Christian by some of the things that I say. Hopefully they would, and that they wouldn't think I'm not a Christian by what I'm saying. So think about that. I'm, I'm not one of those, you know, you need to unplug from social media. You're an idiot Christian. I mean, that's not it. I love social media. I think it's all great. Just use it. If 99% of your posts are not about Jesus, if nobody could find out you're a Christian based on that, then that might be something you want to adjust. You don't have to get off Facebook. You need to get on Facebook and, and start talking about how much Jesus means to you. It's a great tool. It really is. And so let people know you're around other believers. And then they busted Peter because of the way he talked. In our case, our language should be affected as we're with the Lord and among his people. Uh, for one thing, we begin to have a vocabulary that is unique to us. And uh, they're words that we never encountered before, but that they're in the Bible. Words like justification and sanctification and uh, even repentance and fellowship. F phrases like the flesh and spirit-led. Be aware that other people sometimes don't know what you're talking about. You might have to explain that to them. But we start to have our own language. You and I every day sit in the world, might be at dinner 
at home. It might be at the water cooler at work. It might be at a classroom in school. We want to tell others about the Lord, not deny him in any way, but we fail, and sometimes abysmally. Verse 74, he began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Concentrate on Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Think of it. A particular rooster had been appointed by God to crow at this exact moment. If the Lord could fulfill his prediction of a crowing rooster while he was being beaten, then he could and would certainly fulfill the promise he had also given as a word to Peter earlier that evening. Luke records it. He said, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You know what I love about that? I don't want to dwell on it too much, but the Lord said, hey, Peter, you're going to have the trial of your life tonight. The devil himself wants to sift you. And Peter, you're going to fail. I know he meant that because he said, because when you return to me, in other words, you're going to have to go away from me, but when you return to me, and you will, you'll be able to strengthen your brethren. I don't know any more comforting words. Paul the Apostle, one time in, the God, in his writing, he said, should sin abound, that grace should abound. He said, God forbid you would even think something like that, that it's okay to sin because God's going to forgive me. But when sin does abound, when we do fall, when we do fail, grace abounds. If we will repent, God will restore and we can strengthen our brothers and sisters. Peter went out and wept bitterly and we say he repented not just because of the tears, but because he returned to the Lord and restored. We know the rest of the story. Now, I'm liking this word abysmal today. I've been an abysmal failure myself at times. <laughs> like now. Uh, I'm guessing so have you. You might have recently failed the Lord. You might be failing him even as we speak. You might be being crushed right now by something where you're saying, Lord, I gotta get out of here. I failed you so much. Maybe you'll fail him tomorrow. You're feeling pretty good about yourself right now. Just wait. Some trial could get dropped into your life that shakes you to the very foundations of your faith. You might be called upon to take a stand for Jesus that could cost you your job or your family. In many places around the world for centuries, it's cost you your life. If you fail, repent. Return to the Lord. Return to your first love. It's really all that simple because God's grace is available to you and it is sufficient for you. This is a word for every one of us who have failed and who will fail. And when we're failing, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. We know that's true because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And when you return, you will strengthen your brethren. When you return. How do I know I'm going to return? Because in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, I have kept them. You keep them now for me. God's going to keep me. Doesn't mean I can't fail, doesn't mean I don't sin abysmally. It does mean I need to repent and come back to the Lord. From now on, Jesus said, people are gonna see me sitting at the right hand of God, poised to return. They see him in you, through you, by your testimony, regardless of what's going on in your life. And sometimes they see him most powerfully when what's going on in your life causes people to scratch their heads and say, how is this even possible? 
I'd be going crazy if I were you. I would walk away from God if I were you. I don't see how you can take this. People need to see Christians doing things no one can or would do apart from God. If it's something I can do, or I can teach you to do, I can toughen up and muscle up and uh, you know, bone up on the uh, intellect and all of that, then anybody can do it. There have to be times in our lives when something's going on that no one can get through without divine help, and we get through it with that help so that people um, are amazed the way that they were amazed at these first guys and every generation of Christian after them. People need to see Christians in total dependence upon the Lord. And for that, today I would recommend as we pray that you ask for a fresh filling of God the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray.